Shabbat Shalom. Would you please join me as we pray and bless God for the opportunity to study Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kichanu b'mitzvatav vitzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I have good news. This news is the news that matters most. This news affects how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see the world. This news affects how we process all other news, and it changes everything about how we live our lives. Would you like to hear this news? Here is the news. In fact, it's called good news. Yeshua is the Messiah. He is Adonai, the one anointed to save the world. He paid the price for all sin by way of his blameless life, submission to undeserved death, resurrection from the grave, and ascension to glory. He is our salvation. He is Adonai, and by choosing him as Lord of our life, loving him through righteousness and loving kindness, we can look forward to eternity with him in heaven, in his glory and light. This is the good news that I have. It is good news for me, and it is good news for you. But how do I know that this news is true? How do I know that it's certain? Well, the scriptures explain how. Romans chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, God promised this good news in advance through his prophets in the Tanakh. It concerns his son. He descended from David physically. He was powerfully demonstrated to be son of God spiritually and set apart by having been resurrected from the dead. He is Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. So how do I know that the good news is true? I believe that the scriptures are true, that they are the inspired writings of God. But how do I or anyone actually even get there to believe that the scriptures are true? How do I arrive at believing or help someone else arrive at believing that Yeshua is the Messiah if even the scriptures might be in question or even simply unfamiliar? The question people may ask is, where is the proof? Well, I have more good news. I have in my hands the faith proof for God, written by Eric K. Painter in his philosophy of religion class on March 10th, the year of our Lord, 2000, zero. And... It begins, 
drudging mindlessly and numbly through the mud swamp of philosophic dialogue concerning the existence of God results in the sensation that no matter how far one can go, the deeper into the crud and grime one sinks. My professor, Dr. Charles Campbell, had a comment for that opening line. Holy cow, was it really that bad? <laughs> the only thing that I have been convinced of is that anyone who asserts that he can prove something is misguided. One who asserts that he can prove or disprove the existence of God is a lunatic. Enjoy yourself as I now indulge myself in my own version of misguided lunacy. And so Dr. Campbell left some summary notes before giving me my grade. He summed it up like this. Interesting, but strange. It seems that proof for God is either logically possible or not, which would be the leap of faith. But you, after rejecting the logical proofs, have created a different logical proof, and I don't see why or how it works any better. See paragraph one. I agree. Well, he graciously gave me a 95 for the philosophic gymnastics that I was able to perform. But the trap that I encountered while writing this paper is this premise that faith is opposite to logic. In fact, faith can coexist with logic, but it isn't threatened by the presence of logic, nor is it threatened by the absence of logic. You see, the idea of proof is a tricky one. If we look at its definition, proof is defined first as the evidence or argument that compels the mind to accept an assertion as true. That seems a little shaky, actually. That means I have to decide to accept something. The second definition, the validation of a proposition by application of specified rules. Okay, so we have to apply rules in order to accept something as true. As of induction or deduction to assumptions, axioms, and sequentially derived conclusions. The third definition, proof is a statement or argument used in such a validation. Okay, so you're telling me in order to accept this as proof, I have to accept other things as proof, which all rely on me making the choice to accept this or that assertion. So while on the surface we think of proof as fact, it actually is dependent upon all these decisions to accept this or that. And it is not as solid an idea or a word as we would like it to be. So, if we cannot essentially prove that God exists because it still requires the choice to make a choice, to believe something. If we cannot prove that God exists or that Yeshua is the Messiah, then it actually points to something interesting we should take note of. What we think and decide about God and Yeshua not only matters, it is required that we think something about it because there is no proof that can decide it for us. So what is a person actually saying when they say, prove to me that God exists, or prove to me that Yeshua is the Messiah? What they're asking is this, 
can you give me certainty? Well, since proof still requires us to accept things, perhaps the next best thing is to look at evidence, okay? Well, let's consider some evidence. How about this? The scriptures have endured for thousands of centuries. They were, they were penned thousands of years ago. They have been kept letter by letter, copied meticulously throughout the ages so that we know that today this book contains the very letters that were written thousands of years ago. Then we have the community of faith that has endured as well over the centuries. The community of faith that made sure that the scriptures survived and endured. The community of faith that has endured all kinds of challenges and has passed on their faith from generation to generation. We can look at the endurance and the thriving of our Jewish people against all odds, all opposition, all hate, all the challenges, even their own failings. They have survived. God has preserved them. They are still here. We are still here. And we are continuing to contribute to the world, uh, helping it move forward in better ways. So these are some external things we can look at as potential evidence for the existence of God and the validity of our faith. There's something internal also that we can look at. We can look at what the scriptures uh, refer to as eternity in our hearts. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, He has made everything suited to its time. Also, he has given human beings an awareness of eternity, but in such a way that they can't fully comprehend from beginning to end the things that God does. So we have inside us this awareness of eternity. We have this belief, this hope, that this is not all that there is. We have this hope that there's something more beyond this life. We have inside us a yearning for heaven. You know, some question the existence of heaven, which is interesting because we all go about trying to create our own version of heaven on earth. And we, we're thinking, you know, the reason that we do this is because we think that this can't be as good as it gets, right? We, there must be something better. Things should be better. And so we have this sense that things can be better and should be, be better, and we try to make them better in any way that we can within our own power, but we see every day the limits of our ability to do that. And we can look at how faith, uh, every faith, every religion that we see in the world has their own version of heaven. And so we see this as evidence of, you know, we're being compelled to believe. We just have to believe that there's something more. Even the belief that there is nothing after death is in fact a version of heaven because at the very least, it's the end to our earthly pain. But perhaps the most poignant moment when we think about heaven and hope for heaven 
as when we lose people that we love. And when our own end draws near, we hope that we will see the ones that we love again. So these are all examples of maybe evidence that can help us to be open or to, to assign validity to faith and to the existence of God and to Yeshua being the Messiah and all of those things that are connected to that. But in truth, all of these things are really kind of abstract. They're, they're not super personal except for the, the last thing that, that we mentioned. It's, it's intellectual and while logical, it may not actually carry the weight that's needed for us to make a choice because let's be honest, when we make a choice to make Yeshua Lord of our life, it means we have to change our life. And so the things that are required uh, to help us make that choice have to have weight that makes us willing to take that step. There is a choice to be made. And in fact, not making a choice is making a choice. So if it's certainty you want, a personal encounter with God is what you need. Empirical or intellectual proof and evidence is this construct that we have put together with this mortar of reasonable acceptances, choices to believe. But we need to see him. We need to see God ourselves if we want any sense of certainty. This is as irrefutable as certainty as evidence can get. So these encounters with God, these are the moments, these are, these are the mortar that hold the bricks of my faith together. The personal encounters I've had have, have been many. Some are very subtle and some have been life-changing. A couple that I can uh, share with you. One, I was with a friend of mine, Jake. Uh, in high school, we were attending a, um, a worship and prayer event, and he was sitting in the chair next to me, and there was just music going on and prayer, and, and uh, Jake had grown up from childhood with severe scoliosis, and he'd had multiple surgeries. His back looked like the laces of a football from all the scars from his surgery. And so he's sitting next to me during this event, and all this is going on, and all of a sudden, he sits up straight like this, and I could hear with my ears, like, the sound, have you, if you've ever been to a chiropractor, it's what it sounded like. Some invisible chiropractor went to town on him, and he sat up straight, and he looked at me, and he said, my back is hot. So, in the next, you know, in the following weeks, he went to the doctor, he had images done, and his spine was straight as an arrow. No one laid hands on him. He was just there. He was in the presence of the Lord. And for whatever reason, it pleased the Lord to heal him in that moment. Uh, there's another encounter with God that maybe some of you actually shared with me. Uh, our synagogue met uh, in a different building some years back. And the sanctuary, if you can believe, was a box with no windows. We are blessed now with all the windows we have here. 
and all the light. But our sanctuary there had no windows. We only had a door on the side that opened out to the street as, a, as an emergency exit. And so I was leading worship and was beginning the song, uh, Like the Rain, so a song about rain and, and worshiping God. And uh, as we began the song, Rabbi, it started to rain outside. We could hear it. And Rabbi David said, let's open the door. And so we opened the door so we could hear the rain coming down as we're singing this song of worship, Like the Rain. And so as I began to lead the song in the first couple lines, I felt this impression on me to, to pause, so, something that is not normally done in, in this song. Just pause at the end of these two lines. And so, so I did. I paused. Boom! All of a sudden, this massive thunderstrike just happened right there in that moment. And we could all feel the power of that moment that we had all paused and given God a chance to say, I am with you. It's a powerful moment for us as a congregation. But the encounters with God that really reinforce my faith in the, in the hard times are how he revealed himself to me in the gift of our children. And the eye rolls begin. <laughs> Last week I mentioned, uh, I, I told some detail about our firstborn, Sophia. Just to recap quickly, Safi, we, so uh, Anya and I, when we decided to start having children, uh, it proved to be more difficult than we thought it would be. And so we started, you know, doing, seeing doctors, taking medication, doing everything that we could do within our power to help things. And uh, during that time, I wrote a song. Um, and in that song were these two lines, Adonai, you so lovingly hide the children you love so close to your side. And Anya, with some friends, came up with a dance that they presented to the congregation. So, so she she presented this, this dance together. Uh, and so some time went, went by, and we uh, just reached a breaking point. And you know, Anya was sick all the time, and just it was awful. And we kind of reached a moment of despair, like a breaking point. We, we, finally, we just said, God, if this is going to happen, it just has to be you. Like, there's nothing more that we can do. We, all we can do is trust you. And so, uh, as it turns out, shortly after that, uh, Anya took a pregnancy test, and it was positive. We became pregnant. And, in fact, not only was she pregnant, she was three months pregnant. And so, what we learned was that the medication she was taking sometimes hides uh, the fact that you're pregnant. But it also is medication that's used to preserve pregnancy and prevent miscarriage. And while she was actually pregnant with Sophia, she was presenting this dance to the congregation to the words, Adonai, you so lovingly hide the children you love so close to your side. And so that was just a powerful 
encounter, a personal encounter with God uh, that we're reminded of every time we look at our daughter, Sophia. Uh, Naya, Naya is also a miracle for us because she was unexpected. She came along and we didn't know that it would be that easy to have another one. So she was a miracle in that way. She's also a miracle in this way. Naya lives up to her name. Naya means new, and her middle name, Orlia, is Or, Li, and Yah. Or is Hebrew for light. Li is my, and Yah is God. God is my light. So you may be able to attest, along with me, that when Naya walks into a room, there's always going to be something new, and she brings the light and laughter with her. And lastly, my son, Nikita, who arrived right on time, which Anya would beg to differ. He was actually 10 days late. But there was a time when I, we decided it was time to try one more time to have a son. And I decided I wanted, I was really serious about it. So I drove to Mount Mitchell in North Carolina, which is the highest peak in uh, on the eastern seaboard of the United States. And I went up that mountain, and on that mountain, in the most quiet stillness I've ever experienced in my life, I prayed and asked God for a son. Two years to the day that I was on that mountain, my son was born. So I have had these personal encounters with God, but what it took was engaging God. Revealing himself through our children is a particular way in which God likes to work. He worked this way with Avraham in our Torah readings this week. I finally got there. So if you'd like to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, we'll look for a moment. Chapter 18, verse 1. Adonai appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance to the tent during the heat of the day. He raised his eyes and looked, and there in front of him stood three men. On seeing them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, prostrated himself on the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please don't leave your servant. Please let me send for some water so that you can wash your feet. And then rest under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread. Now that you have come to your servant, refresh yourselves before going on. Very well, they replied, do as you have said. And jumping down uh, to verse 8. Then he took curds, milk, and the calf which he had prepared, and set it all before them, before the men. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? He said, There in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you around this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah heard him from the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, I am old, and so is my Lord. Am I to have pleasure again? Adonai said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and ask, Am I really going to bear a child when I'm so old? 
Is anything too hard for Adonai? At the time set for it, at this season next year, I will return to you and Sarah will have a son. So, chapter uh, chapter 18, verse 1, the beginning is very interesting. Adonai appeared to Abraham. Does it say an angel of the Lord? Nope. Does it say a man of God? No. The Hebrew that's written are the letters Yod, He, Vav, He. These are the letters that spell the name of God. They do not apply to anyone else. God himself appeared. Appeared, the word ra'ah, Hebrew, means to see or to be seen. So Adonai appeared and was seen by Avraham. And we read here that not only did he appear, he ate. Now, some, some would like to make the argument that Yeshua, not Yeshua, but Adonai appeared, yes. Well, look at this. It says, in the heat of the day, Avraham was hallucinating. It was hot. Well, I don't know about you. As far as I know, hallucinations do not eat steak and cake. People do. And so we see something. Adonai was seen by Abraham as a physical man who ate food. So what we can understand from this is that God can limit his being and appear himself in the form of a man. If you don't think so, then I congratulate you because you have found the one thing that God cannot do. We can also see that God can not only observe the world, but he can be present in it in unprecedented ways. God came as a man to promise Abraham and Sarah a son. But why? Why would God himself come and give them this good news? I think it's because it's a foreshadowing of when he would come again that he would come again as a son, a descendant of Avraham. If you would like, you can turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city in the Galil called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Yosef of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Miriam. Approaching her, the angel said, Shalom, favored lady, Adonai is with you. She was deeply troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with your God. Look, you will become pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua. He will be great. For he will be called son of Ha Elyon, Adonai, God, 
will give him the throne of his forefather David, and he will rule the house of Yaakov forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. How can this be, asked Miriam of the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God, will come over you. The power of Ha-El-Yon will cover you. Therefore, the holy child born to you will be called the Son of God. Yeshua descended from David, who descended from Abraham and Sarah. Because as it turns out, Sarah did have a son. If we turn back to the story of Abraham and Sarah, to Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, Adonai remembered Sarah as he had said, and Adonai did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the very time God had said to him. Abraham called his son, born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Yitzchak. Abraham circumcised his son Yitzchak when he was eight days old, as God had ordered him to do. Adonai visited. Now, the scripture I read here in English says Adonai remembered. But if we look at the Hebrew, again, the Hebrew word is pakad, which is to visit. So Adonai visited Sarah in order to enable her to conceive. So here we have this parallel. The Ruach HaKodesh visited Sarah and Miriam enabling miraculous births to happen. From Sarah's closed womb descended King David, and from King David descended Yeshua, born to a virgin. So the parallels of these families continue as the story takes an unexpected turn. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Avraham. He said to him, Avraham, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak, and go to the land of Moriah. There you are to offer him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will point out to you. And jumping down to verse 9, They came to the place God had told him about, and Abraham built the altar there, set the wood in order, bound Yitzchak, his son, and laid him on the altar, on the wood. And then Abraham put out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of Adonai called to him out of heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He answered, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you are a man who fears God because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Avraham raised his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. Avraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. Avraham called the place Adonai Yireh, Adonai will see to it, or Adonai provides, as it is said to this day, on the mountain Adonai is seen. So God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son. 
But God stays the hand of Abraham and provides a substitute. So the willingness of uh, the willingness to sacrifice Yitzchak was enough for the Lord to know that Abraham feared him. However, the perfect sacrifice that Yitzchak represented was still required. So this sacrifice was delayed until the perfect sacrifice could be made. So the day came when God did not stay his own hand, when his own son, the future son of Abraham, Yeshua, born to the virgin Miriam, was lifted up as the perfect sacrifice and fulfillment of the substitution for Yitzchak. Abraham models the life of a bearer of good news. Adonai himself brought good news to Abraham because he saw Abraham one with whom and through whom he could entrust and carry forward his plan of salvation for the whole world. Even though he did not yet reveal his entire plan uh, in complete detail to Abraham, Abraham played his part. He did all that God laid out in front of him to do. So let me ask you, do you want to be someone God can entrust with his plan? Do you want to do your part as a bearer of good news? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 says, This good news was entrusted to me, and I thank the one who has given me strength, the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, that he considered me trustworthy enough to put into his service. We have something that Abraham did not have. We have the whole story. What God foreshadowed in the life of Abraham, he revealed in full to us. What to Abraham was hope, to us is history. Abraham chose to trust God's plan of salvation and play his part in it. And because he did, the benefits of God's plan are available to us today. The part we must play is simply to receive those benefits and be faithful, duty-bound bearers of good news by accepting, living, and sharing the good news with those who have not heard or who wonder about Yeshua, the Messiah. By receiving the good news, it is entrusted to us to live it out and to pass it on. Because this is where those who are searching for certainty can see and wonder at the observable presence of God. And that is by seeing the effects of the Spirit of God in the lives and through the lives of those who truly and humbly are devoted to a present and a future in the presence of God and who are devoted to playing their part in his plan to bring good news to the whole world in spite of all the bad news that's around us. Let me tell you that there is no bad news that can suppress the power of the good news. It is because of the bad news that we need good news. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 12, it's written, And indeed, 
all who want to live a godly life united with the Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. But you, but you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, recalling the people from whom you learned it, and recalling, too, how from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which can give you the wisdom that leads to deliverance through trusting in Yeshua, the Messiah. And we can continue in Second Timothy chapter 4. Just flip the page. Chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. For the time is coming when people will not have patience for sound teaching, but will cater to their passions and gather around themselves teachers who say whatever their ears itch to hear. Yes, they will stop listening to the truth, but will turn aside and follow myths. But you, you remain steady in every situation, endure suffering, and do the work that a proclaimer of the good news should, and do everything your service to God requires. So to followers of Yeshua, I say live in this way in these times. Despite the bad news, proclaim the good news as you should. And to those who are looking for hope, hear the good news that followers of Yeshua are telling you. And do not wait to make a choice. Say yes to Yeshua. Shema, hear the good news. Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah for the whole world. The Son of God, who is God, who appeared to us as he appeared to Avraham. He miraculously gave Abraham a son and stayed Abraham's hand ready in obedience and faith to sacrifice his own son. So God made a covenant with Abraham through it saying, because you did not withhold your son, through you my son will appear and I will not withhold him from the sacrifice needed to atone for all sin for all people, for all time. So, let's say you're open. Let's say you're interested. This good news, it's compelling, but you're still wondering, how do I make this choice? How can I know for certain that all of this is true? Psalms chapter 34, verse 9, puts it simply, Taste and see that Adonai is good. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. You can't be certain how something tastes until you taste it. Saying yes to Yeshua is not a leap of certainty, it is a leap of faith. It requires a choice to believe without certainty, which is why 
it is so meaningful to God that you choose him because it requires trust. Trust that those from whom you heard the good news are telling you the truth because they love you. This is why faith is so precious, because it is acknowledging that there is an element of uncertainty while choosing to conform your life to your hope in Yeshua, which then allows your certainty to grow. We don't begin with certainty about Yeshua. We gain certainty after we begin life anew with him. You start with hope and discover more and more reason to trust. And by choosing to trust, you engage your faith and give it opportunity to grow into certainty. No one can prove that Yeshua is who he said he is, except him. And only you can give him that chance. Saying yes to Yeshua, I think, is identical to saying yes in marriage. You see, when you say yes in marriage, it starts like this. You know something about the person, but not everything. I mean, I mean who here learned something about their spouse after the wedding? <laughs> I did, and I know she did too. <laughs> You also have, you have some life experiences together, hopefully. And, you know, those are great, but it's really a small sample size. You love what you know. You love what you've experienced. But there is no certainty of what life together is going to be like. You know enough to make a decision, a choice. I will love this person based on what I know now. We'll be true to our decision to love one another when the hard times come. And through those times, we'll prove our love to one another. And at the height of our certainty, and the height of our certainty will be at the, at the apex of our life together when death does indeed part us. But it all started with a feeling in a moment, that this person could be the one I choose. And you chose to pursue the leading of that feeling. In the same way, faith in Yeshua begins with that feeling that he could be the one. He could be the Messiah. In the same way, we choose Yeshua by choosing to choose him. It makes sense if you think about it. The truth is Yeshua is the one proposing to us. And so we say yes to Yeshua by saying yes to him. Like this. Yes, Yeshua, you are the Messiah. Yes, Yeshua, you are my Messiah. I know that I need you, so I invite you. I accept you. I Choose you to be Lord of my life. Please help me to figure out the rest together with you. And so we figure it out with him through day-by-day -day life of faith. And as we have shared experiences with him, 
where we experience his faithfulness and his peace and his love in real life situations like the ones that I described to you, in real conversation with him. And when we see real answers and interventions that we know could only have been him, this is how our certainty is made absolute. Yeshua is Adonai, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to us, dwelled among us, suffered, died, resurrected, ascended, and to this day he is atoning for our sin in heaven. So we will dwell with him eternally in heaven. And here, this is where the metaphor of marriage falls short, for death will never part us from him. Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. But God is so rich in mercy and loves us with such intense love that even when we were dead because of our acts of disobedience, he brought us to life along with the Messiah. It is by grace that you have been delivered. That is, God raised us up with the Messiah Yeshua and seated us with him in heaven in order to exhibit in the ages to come how infinitely rich is his grace, how great is his kindness toward us who are united with the Messiah Yeshua. For you have been delivered by grace through trusting, and even this is not your accomplishment, but God's gift. The opportunity to say yes to God is a gift. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He delivered us and called us to a life of holiness as his people. It was not because of our deeds, but because of his own purpose and the grace which he gave to us who are united with the Messiah Yeshua. He did this before the beginning of time, but made it public only now through the appearing of our Deliverer. The appearing of our Deliverer, the Messiah Yeshua, who abolished death and through the good news revealed life and immortality. As we go about this life amidst all the people trying to create their own versions of heaven on earth, which only seems to generate bad news for everyone else, we must remind ourselves and then tell others the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is present wherever those whose hearts he inhabits come and go. Acknowledging Yeshua as Lord of your life makes him ruler of your circumstances, able to overrule and overturn evil, harm, and hurt that is intended to defeat you. He is the good shepherd, the divine healer, our comforter in times of sorrow, our refuge, our fortress of rock in the storms of life. He is our protector and our provider. He is our father who created us and loves us, who sees us and hears our prayers and calls us home as his children. He is our redeemer who gave up himself, his only son, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we would have hope and a future so that death would not 
defeat us, but reunite us with him in his presence on that day when we breathe our last and exchange the presence of the kingdom of heaven on earth for the presence of the king in heaven forever and ever. This is the good news. And so now we choose, not once, but day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, to live the fullness of that reality by saying yes to Yeshua the first time and every time. If you want to say yes to Yeshua, you can right now with me like this. Yes, Yeshua, you are the Messiah and Adonai, the Son of the Most High. Yes, Yeshua, you are my Messiah and my Lord. Yes, I know that I need you, so I invite you, I accept you, I choose you. Please help me figure out the rest together with you. Lord, we are so grateful to you for your good news. We are so grateful that you revealed yourself to us and that you made a way through Abraham for us to be reunited with you forever in heaven. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the boldness and the courage that we need to live out this good news and the compassion that we need to not hold back and to not keep this good news to ourselves, but to share it with all those around us in spite of all the bad news. Because in your good news is power, and your good news is what the world needs to hear. We thank you, Lord, for entrusting your good news to us. And we ask for your help in living it out. In Yeshua's name, amen. So if you would, please stand and put your arm around someone you love nearby. And I will bless you. Yivarechecha Adonai V'yishmarecha Yaher Adonai Panevelecha V'chunecha Yisa Adonai Panevelecha V'yasim lecha Shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom.